0: so I think we have to be a bit more sophisticated about sharing what would otherwise be matrimonial property, and potentially include some sort of limited sharing let's say 15, 20, 25% of all reporting terms. put that in in, in the agreement so that the principle of sharing matrimonial property is not acknowledged but it's not left to, to 50% whether that's the right strategy would obviously depend from agreement to agreement and the right percentage would depend from agreement to agreement but I do think we need to that's a
1: bit. A bit and what I find so hard in those cases is your crystal ball gazing. So what might work strategically for the first few years then may yeah. not, depending on wealth or inherited wealth or where they're going to live. So it's really tricky, isn't it?
2: Hello. Today we're looking at the questions of prenuptial agreements, which is highly topical at the moment. We're joined by Nicholas Bennett from 29 Bedford Row and Connie Atkinson from Kingsley Napley, who are both well known for their expertise in this area. I should also say, so is my co-presenter, Simon. So we're expecting a lively discussion today. Connie, could I come to you first and ask you to introduce yourself?
1: Yes, thank you very much for having me. Um, So I'm a partner in the family team at Kingsley Napoli, having been there for many years, I did my training contract there. And I'm lucky enough to do a little bit of everything. So do the money work and do the children work. I am one of the modern families and surrogacy specialists in the team. um, And I'm also a mediator. So it's really lovely that, you know, every day um, is a little bit different. And I have become very interested in sort of prenuptial agreement work and litigating prenuptial agreement work, mainly because Nick keeps talking to me about it um, and has <laughs> persuaded me that it's perfectly interesting.
2: <laughs> and Nick, can you introduce yourself, please?
0: Of course. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Um, Nick Dennis, I'm a barrister at 29 as You said I need to <clears throat> call in 2005, although I haven't been at the bar all that time because I was um, a partner at Farron and Paintings Speech for part of my time in practice. About two-thirds of my time is spent drafting prenups, and then the other third spent litigating ancillary relief cases with prenups at their heart, either trying to tear them up or make them stand up. Thank you Beth.
3: That's really that's a really good introduction. Connie, I'm interested when when clients ask you or clients' parents quite often in my experience ask you, do nuptial agreements really make a difference? what what, what do you say to them?
1: The short answer is yes, we say now, and we we try to talk to them about the background and the ways that prenups have changed over the years, because I think people don't always have the same opinion or don't necessarily understand when they don't know very much about them. Obviously, As we know, prenuptial agreements many years ago used to be a factor taken into account on the breakdown of a relationship, but it wasn't necessarily determinative. And there have been arguments in the past about whether they should be seen as contracts by the two people entering into them and whether there should be a difference between a prenuptial agreement um, and a postnuptial agreement. And then really helpfully in 2010, we had the case of Radmacher, which everyone will obviously know about. And there's a huge amount of guidance given in that, but also a, a trawl through the history. But we really felt the tide change um, following Radmacher and we were told at at, uh, paragraph 75 that the fact of an agreement is capable of altering what is considered to be fair. So we know now that there's there's no issue. There's no um, problem with mature couples clarifying their financial commitment to one another prior to the marriage. And in fact, it can help. It sets out what your expectations are in the event of a separation and hopefully means that you don't have to submit yourselves to you know fully contested and very expensive final hearings. So the courts are very much saying we need to give weight to prenuptial agreements in the right case and to have respect for individual autonomy, because it would be quite paternalistic and patronising to try to override what a couple have agreed together just because the court thinks it knows best. So that is very much um, what we're seeing now. And while you can't oust the court's jurisdiction in financial remedy, remedy proceedings, the outcome is likely to be, um, if done properly with appropriate safeguards, uh, what the, the prenuptial agreement or postnuptial agreement provides for. And so it isn't just, you know, in the right case now, it's got magne- it's of magnetic importance, but it is much more likely to be determinative if done properly, proper safeguards, etc. Hmm.
2: Thank you. Nick, can you tell us what a Crosley application is and whether you should make one?
0: Yes. <clears throat> Crossley is a court of legal case from 2007, which is technically an appeal uh, from a procedural decision. But it now gives, gives its name to effectively a show cause type of application in relation to a prenup. That's to say an application which says that the prenup is a knockout blow and therefore the process of financial disclosure should be truncated. In Crossley itself, what Mr Justice Bennett said was that Form Z should be completed. But without documents, and the process of questionnaires and answering questionnaires shouldn't be entered into. And it was that <clears throat>, case management decision that was appealed, and the court of appeal upheld it, upheld that decision, saying it was it was very sensible. And so, quite often in, at the start of prenup litigation, the question arises: Should one make such an application? It's tempting, but risky. It does have major advantages. It will truncate the process. It will save time and Costs, But of course, if it's unsuccessful, then not only is it an interlocutory application which will give rise to a a cost order uh, in favour of the successful party, but it also provides um, that party with an immediate litigation win, and you might not want to do that. My usual view is that crossing applications are only prudent if the agreement really is a knockout blow, if there aren't... (coughs) procedural grounds or financial grounds to, to get out of it and come on to what some of those might might be later in our, in our discussion, I think. Because it's relevant that in Crossley itself, it was a short childless marriage where the husband had something in the order of 45 million pounds, the wife had something in the order of 18 million pounds, and the prelap was a simple drop-pounds document. In those circumstances, the pre-lap, what obviously was a knockout loan would be <clears throat> the magnetic factor, factor completely disseminated. Only when you have a set of facts as as good as that, I think, is a, is across the application worthwhile. Nick, you talk there about the
3: importance of the procedural factors. So presumably, before making a crossly application, you you review the the prenup in question. What, what are you looking for? Exactly, that's
0: that, that's right. I think <coughs> most most people now are familiar with the three essential procedural points that the course is going to want to be satisfied of before it gives weight to the agreement. Those are no unfair pressure, financial disclosure and independent legal advice. One thing I think it might be prudent to get away from in that regard is the idea of 28 days. Most people have fixed in their mind the, the notion that if, if an agreement isn't signed 28 days before the before wedding, then it's, it's useless. But you've got to return to what what's actually said in the of Judgment, to try and understand that it's not about fixed black and white rules in that, in that respect. It's about whether each party has had the time and space to reflect on the terms of, of the agreement and sign it with a full appreciation of its implications. So in, in my mind, an agreement which has six or eight weeks' worth of negotiation but is signed 21 days before the wedding is just as valid and probably more valid An agreement that has two weeks of negotiation and and signed 28 days before. It's about, as I say, it's about time, space, pause for reflection rather than a magic, the magic of a a date. So that's so that's a question of time. Now, of course, 28 days is useful because it's good practice for everybody and it concentrates the mind and it gets gets the clients who often are in two minds about whether they want to sign these things and (coughs) don't want to. Give them huge amounts of time and attention. It gives them something to work towards. But I think in our, in our drafting practice, we, we ought to be looking a little bit more, more nuanced, I think, about, um, about timing. And I think the same point applies in relation to, to financial disclosure. Obviously, good practice, best practice would be proper financial disclosure, a page or two of bullet point summary form disclosure. But Radmacher doesn't say that without that, an agreement will be completely invalid. Of course, Mr. Granantino didn't have any financial disclosure at all. He knew that Ms. Radmacher was from a very wealthy family, uh, but he didn't know precisely how much. He didn't know the nature of of, of her wealth or how it was was held. What they say, this is paragraph 69 of the judgment, is if it's clear that a party is fully aware of the implications of an agreement and indifferent to detailed particulars of the other party's assets, There is no need to accord the agreement reduced weight because he or she is unaware of those particulars. So, again, it's helpful in one way, it's unhelpful in, in another. What they're looking for is material financial disclosure. So, to be satisfied that the economically weaker party signing this agreement knew enough. Perversely, of course, the larger the asset base, the less detail that party needs to know. In, in billionaire prenups. all you need to say is that the, the, the economically stronger party is a is a billionaire, and then finally, independent legal advice I think Connie will come on to talk about um, unfair pressure and so on it's It's really the same point independent legal, legal advice is one of those gold standard best practice points and will enable you to demonstrate if they've been scrutinized at the point of litigation that the party in question had a full appreciation of, of the implications of the But it's not absolutely vital, they say, back to paragraph 69, that it's obviously desirable. But if somebody's had an opportunity to take legal advice, particularly if that opportunity comes with an offer to fund the costs of it, and they say, no, I'm not prepared, I, I don't want it, I'm not interested in it, I'm not having it, if it's clear in correspondence that the, they've had the chance and, it, and they've, they've turned it down. Well, I don't think that in itself is um, a hammer blow to the to agreement. So just like with the, with the previous two, two points, it's all about context. It's all about, about circumstances. It's, more, it's much, much more shades of grey in terms of these procedural uh, tests than it is about a tick box.
3: Thanks, Nick. I, I think a lot of the reason people fixate on those points is to do with the Law Commission report and the fact that a lot of precedent prenups still yes. talk about that, even though that was an awful long time ago, and there's absolutely no sign of it being implemented. So, should should we really just put that to one side and stop referring to I,
0: that? I tend to. I tend to. Yeah, my 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 drafts don't don't refer to that because it's now. Getting on for a um, for a decade old, pretty stale. As you say, no likely prospect that it's going to be introduced in, in in any time soon. Although I I do note that in the new work that the law Commission's going to do in relation to <clears> that's relief generally. There's a, there's a hint that they will look at how their previous report fits fits into that. So possibly, if the government are going to do a, a big bang reform of, uh, of of this area of the law, we might might have it in. But But no, certainly I don't, in in my drafts, seek to claim that agreements are, quote, qualifying natural agreements, close quote, because I don't think that that phrase has any real meaning at the moment.
2: Thank you. Connie, are there any other vitiating factors we should be considering?
1: Um, Yes, I think so. Uh, So we look at those um, arising from contract law and then other sort of undue pressure. So, looking first at those from contract law, so normally duress, fraud, misrepresentation, if any of those exist, then it could be um, fatal to the prenuptial agreement. And again, as we'll probably say quite a lot, um, it's all going to be fact specific. So, it depends if. You know it completely incorrect information is um, given and then and then relied upon um, in respect of misrepresentation. I think it needs to be material to the formation of the prenuptial agreement and induce the person to enter into it so you'd also be looking you know what was the misrepresentation but also what was the impact then um, on the parties entering into the document and the document itself. but those concepts derive from contract law they can be difficult to prove. And also we need to remember that we're still in the family division and we're you know, looking at the Matrimonial Causes Act. So while we borrow some of these phrases and these considerations, a family judge still has full discretion and is going to be looking at the Matrimonial Causes Act when making any overall decision. And I think it was the case of Edgar and Edgar, where the judge said it's not necessary to think about all the legal terms and, quotes, misrepresentation or estoppel. But you need to look at all of the circumstances as they affect these two human beings and they must be considered in this complex relationship of marriage and I think that's absolutely right because you know every case is different the relationship is different the background's different the financial circumstances are different and so you know if we do have duress fraud or, or misrepresentation then it could well have a significant in uh, impact on the weight to be attached to the document uh, but you're going to need you know, much more detail about it and, and that impact. And then I think you you come on to other factors, um, which I think Nick touched on on undue pressure and other unworthy conduct. And I've been thinking about this in the context of Radmacher again, and it's saying, you know, these agreements have to be freely entered into with a full appreciation of its implications and an intention to be bound by the document. Well, okay, so in what way does undue pressure then impact on on that statement? We're told at paragraph 71 that undue pressure could eliminate some of the weight to be attached to the document um, as could unworthy conduct and the example being given of exploiting a position of power and that then therefore that this could have a, a reduced weight that would be attached to the document. So we really need to think about our clients, don't we? You know, how old are you? Have you been married before? Have you entered into a prenup before? Um, are you from a country where marriage contracts are entered into, you know, as a matter of course? Because all of that will impact on their understanding of the document, but also the the circumstances of signing, of entering, entering into it and, and the pressure they may or may not have felt. And I think the emotional context is increasingly important. Um, We've seen that in the authorities more recently, not just in cases where a prenuptial or postnuptial agreement is being looked at, but in other financial remedy proceedings as well, in terms of conduct, conduct during the relationship. Taking the case of Traherne and Lim, for example. Evidence would, was heard there about the husband's behaviour and it was found that he wasn't controlling. However, it was also found to be a needs case that the wife's needs weren't met and therefore additional provision was made um, over and above the, pre, uh, the post-nuptial agreement. The judge in that case said that whilst the wife's psychological makeup and previous history of relationship breakups had deprived her of being able to make a rational, considered decision as to what was in her best interests, this was not caused by the husband's conduct. And so the judge didn't find that the husband's conduct was co- coercive or controlling, or that it led to the wife entering into the agreement that, that, that they did. And so What we know is that the courts are going to have to decide objectively uh, whether behaviour was coercive and controlling and then subjectively whether that behaviour had the effect of depriving the other party of the ability to enter into the agreement of their own free will. And I think it really means we're going to have to take a lot of detail from clients in respect of the circumstances surrounding the agreements being entered into and also how, how things are at the time of the breakdown of the marriage. There's a case of a d and b d which the wife I think she was twenty five and she was presented with the prenuptial agreement on the day before her wedding. She didn't have chance to consider it the terms didn't have the ta- chance to con- to talk to her husband about it, take legal advice. I think the judge found that she was the first of her siblings to marry, so wouldn't have really known about these as concepts. And also that she was in a, a state of great turmoil because her father was terminally ill. So the judge really looked at the circumstances of that case and didn't hold weight um, to the prenuptial agreement because looking at those circumstances, she wasn't in a position to meet the test that we've seen in Radmacher. So again, it's going to be a case of us really making sure some. Listers that we're taking full details from our clients when we're entering into the prenups, you know, we're making sure that their state of mind, if they're emotional, everything's recorded in an attendance notes that you may later have to rely on um, when looking at whether it needs to be to be unpicked. Um, and then just touching probably on two more points um we often get asked about the clause in prenups that says if you um weren't if, if this wasn't being signed we wouldn't enter into the agreement and does that you know make one person feel under undue pressure um but i think there's the flip side to it as well that actually if there's no agreement then there's no wedding and therefore the financially weaker party might not have anything you know so by signing the agreement and therefore there being a wedding they will be entitled to financial provision that wouldn't otherwise have been there as as a cohabitant and then the final point was just going to be touching on the law Commission's recommendations again and it's really interesting just to hear the ongoing discussion about that from nick because i do still get clients ask about it, solicitors raise it on the other side. And exactly as Nick had said, we we generally say if there has been an ongoing negotiation for a number of weeks, we, we need to be less worried about it um, than if it's, you know, day 26, 25, 21 or whatever. So it's just keeping an eye on that in, in terms of the travelling drafts and understanding and keeping a record of what the position was at the time.
0: Thanks, Connie. That's really interesting.
3: And um... Nick, when we when we're drafting prenups, the I always think that the easy bit is dealing with what you might call non-matrimonial property, things, things that the parties already have when they get married or things they're going to inherit. But the, the tough bit is dealing with wealth that they're going to generate during the marriage. What, what what does the court say about sharing and prenups?
0: I think that's a very, if I may say so, a very easy way of putting it, Simon, because Again, back to that this idea that we want simple good practice rules. And one simple good practice rule that you hear in, in this sort of work is, oh, well, dealing with sharing is easy. In a prenup, you can exclude sharing claims. You've just got to concentrate on these. And again, sorry to be the bearer of bad tidings, but I do think that Radmacher makes life more complicated in, in that respect. I think a great way to look at this is that using a prenup to exclude sharing non matrimonial property is pretty simple. And it should be because not sharing non matrimonial property is possible anyway. But using a prenup to exclude sharing of what would otherwise be matrimonial property gets more difficult, envisage a situation somebody comes into your, your office, let's assume it's a, it's a he who wants a prenup and then he's bound to start a career in financial services and backs himself to make a very substantial amount of money. Over the course of his, uh, you know, the next 20 years, he's about to get, get married and he wants a prenup, up which seeks to ring fence everything that he will earn during that time from claims, subject to need. He's, he says, well, fine, happy to provide needs, but he, but he doesn't want any entitlement to share in that, that pool of created assets. One of the points that I think is going to emerge from the case law over the next few years is whether it's fair to do that, because at paragraph 81 of Rebecca, they, where they're talking about using prenups to deal with sharing needs, they say, if the devotion of one partner to looking after the and marriage has led the other free to accumulate wealth, it's likely to be unfair to hold the parties to an agreement that entitles the latter to retain all that he or she has earned. And although implicitly rather than explicitly, the Court of Appeal in, in BRAC in 2019 hinted at something similar, when they said that that the court may, albeit unusually, make an order which, contrary to the terms of the agreement, provides the settlement for the wife, so it's the Lady Justice King, in excess of her needs. And so I think we have to be a bit more sophisticated about sharing what would otherwise be matrimonial property and potentially include some sort of limited sharing, let's say 15 20 25% of whatever it is, Put that in, in, in the agreement so that the principle of sharing matrimonial property is not acknowledged, but it's not left to 50 percent. Now, whether that's the right strategy will obviously depend from agreement to agreement and the right percentage will depend from agreement to agreement. But I do think we need to factor that in a bit, uh, a bit more.
1: And what I find so hard in those cases is your crystal ball gazing. So what might work? Strategically for the first few years, then may yeah. not, depending on wealth or inherited wealth or where they're going to live. So it's really tricky, isn't it?
0: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's very hard. I mean, that's probably the most, the most finger-in-the-air part of this type of yeah. work.
2: Thank you, Connie. How, how do we analyse whether these agreements meet needs when you're coming to look at them at the end of a, a end of a
1: marriage? Again, it's quite tricky because so much depends on the circumstances of the case. I mean, in in Radmacher, they did say to us that the parties are unlikely to have intended that their agreement should result in one partner being left in a predicament of real need, while the other enjoys sufficiency or more. Because if that's the case, then the agreement might be unfair. And so then we latched on, I think, to this uh, predicament of real need statement and have had a look over the years at what that should should equate to. Mr. Justice Mostyn said to us in Ipeche and McConnell that if you cannot meet your needs with your own resources, you are in a predicament and therefore there is a real need. And that therefore suggested that we shouldn't be looking at predicament of real need as a sort of lesser standard or meeting a minimum standard of needs. And then I don't know, Nick might touch on this in a minute when looking at more recent case law, but Cummins and Fawn gave us a little bit more guidance recently just looking at this bookend approach, that you might have one bookend with needs being fairly spartan, uh, not necessarily extremely lavish standard of living, and then the other bookend where you have your, your very good standard of living. And it would seem to be suggested that as long as you can meet needs that are within those bookends, then you aren't necessarily in a predicament of real need. And so that is helpful in the sense that I think the suggestion is that The default position is that prenuptial agreements should be upheld as long as you can be within one of those bookends. And if you're not within the bookends, then the top up should only be to get you within the bookends. But again, it's just going to be really fact specific because if you have a judge who has one view about uh, needs and what part of the bookend you or what scale you should be on, then it's not necessarily easy to analyse and predict that. And of course, it will depend on the length of the marriage, the age of the parties, what welfare is, what's been built up during that period of time what their standard of living has been have they enjoyed an amazing standard of living over a 20-year period because then you might want to start benchmarking your needs against that or have you been married for you know 18 months and you're fairly young and you don't have a huge standard of living so all of that will impact on the assessment of needs and a predicament of real needs. And in the case of HD and WB recently, uh, we were told there's a world of difference between a childless couple in a short marriage enjoying a modest lifestyle and a couple who've been together for 20 plus years enjoying a really high standard of living. And so I think that's the same point, really, that you just have to look at the circumstances of the case to try to have a think about uh, where needs fall uh, within that assessment. And of course, if needs can't be met with one party's own resources, we are seeing schedule one top ups quite a lot in decisions of judges, but also in the draft prenups that I see as well um, in the hope of just giving this overall fairness aspect. And then I think finally, even if needs aren't met, I think there used to be an overall question of whether the whole agreement would be thrown out, but I just don't think that's the case anymore. Um, as I touched on, it will be just bringing the needs or the financial provision back up to make sure that needs are met. And so the agreements are only going to be tinkered with, as opposed to torn up and, and ignored completely.
0: I think Connie's absolutely right. This phrase, predicament of real need, is probably the trickiest in the whole whole book when we're trying to draft these agreements, because respectfully, the judges at first instance don't seem to be prepared to give us a completely clear definition. I can't mention we actually have two different definitions by Mr Justice Moffin. He he always expresses himself in amusingly trenchant terms, but say this for him, he, when, he, when he decides that he's wrong, he, he he says that he's wrong in very trenchant terms as, as well. So the difference between Infection and McConnell, which is essentially uh, the phrase, predicament of real, real need means nothing more than the reason news generously interpreted. That's a slight paraphrase on my part. I think I think a fair one. To Cummings and form this year. And I was completely wrong about about that. He says, I do not consider this was at all exp- well expressed by me. So this is not my my criticism. it's it's his own. And that's where we get the the the, uh, the concept of the bookends ends that, that Connie mentioned, where he seems now to have moved to a position where as long as you've done just enough to guess what gets just past the left-hand side of the book, and it will be okay. Mr Justice Peel in H. D. and wb as Connie said, creates a much broader view, um, and, again, my, my paraphrase, says that "pricking good a real need is a sufficiently mutable concept to mean very different things in, um, in very different marriages. I fully understand why, from the perspective of wanting to preserve as much judicial discretion on these agreements as possible, he he, he's made that finding but it does make life hard on the on the drafting side and requires some well a good degree of uh, of crystal ball gazing about what a needs claim in this particular case might mean and ultimately we can only go go so far and have to end up advising the the clients that um we can't give any full-scale, I guarantee that any particular needs revision will, will work because of the large number of unknowns or imponderables. So it would help, in my view, if the Court of Appeal gave us a bit more clarity about what to real need means in practice. Thank you very much. Nick, you are
3: very much a specialist in prenuptial agreements where the family have overseas connections, I guess is the best way of putting it, where you're potentially talking about prenups that need to work in multiple jurisdictions or families moving here who have prenups or nuptial property regimes back home that they're seeking to to replicate. How how does all that play out in our domestic scenario?
0: Yeah, so I think to use a Horrible hackneyed phrase. We've gone on a journey in that, in that respect. Right at the start of the post, right back word, some of the uh, judgments at first instance were, I might say, pretty, pretty jingoistic in, in, in the sense of, well, this is England. We only apply English law. You, you foreigners have come up with some sort of uh, agreement here, which is so different to how we do it in England. That we're just not interested and we perceive a fundamental difference between a civil law marriage contract, which we essentially take to be a tick box exercise, choosing a property regime, and a full English or Anglo Saxon or common law prenuptial agreement dealing with concepts of equitable distribution and financial needs. And if you haven't done, done the second, well, we're not that interested because you're in England and that's how we, how we do these things. Uh, pleasingly, at least to my, to my mind, as I say, that the law has moved on to, to some extent. And in the Verstee case in, in the Court of Appeal, a sort of plaxon was sounded, I, I, I suppose, um, to the effect that we shouldn't expect international cu- couples to have to completely anglicise their own agreements because they happen to be living in England at the time of, time of the divorce. And... This is putting things slightly simplistically, but I think it'll, it'll do for, for our purposes today. The fact that it was a Swedish law agreement there, that English or common law procedural standards hadn't been followed to the letter in that agreement wasn't a decisive problem to the enforcement of that agreement. It was valid under, under Swedish law. Both of those parties were Swedish. Both of them knew what they were signing up to. And so it wasn't right to, decades later, import notions of of English procedural standards and and try and devalue the agreement as a a result. So I don't think it's as simple as saying that um, a foreign law agreement will be immediately respected, even if if it doesn't comply with any any English procedural standards. But we're a bit bit further on than than, than we were right at the start of of Radmacher coming in. In my view, it comes down to needs. Now, the the key about Vashti was that there was so much money in the case that uh, even upholding the prenup in full, Mrs. Vashti still got a very substantial sum of money, in, indeed in, in, in tens of millions, or she walked away with that because that's what she, she held already. And so her only attack on the agreement was that it didn't provide for sharing didn't fit with the English system and should therefore be, be rejected. She was, she was also found to essentially be a highly incredible witness at first instance, which obviously didn't help on appeal. So, so there were specific facts in, in that case, which, uh, which meant it was relatively easy for the cultural appeal to let that prenup go through. More difficult, I think, if you have a straightforward continental-style marriage contract, which doesn't meet need, I think more likely that the courts will be less keen to waive through procedural defects so far as the English system is, system is concerned and wrap, up, wrap it all up into a general finding that the agreement is, is unfair. And so if you're contacted by colleagues in Continental Europe or, of course, anywhere else in, in, in the world with clients who want to do agreements under their local, local law, then some sort of anglicization, if, I, if I'm going to coin, coin a word, is still worthwhile, even if that is limited to a section in that foreign law agreement or a, or a separate short English document confirming that they've had English advice, they understand how the English system works, so they 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 they, they know about the nature of equitable distribution and what they might receive. But nevertheless, they want to be bound by this. By this agreement under under their own law, and I think if you do that, you can get on to um, more technical questions about jurisdiction clauses, seeking for any proceedings to be in that country, or even arbitration clauses in favour of arbitration in that in that particular country, if that if that works. Before before Brexit, you could add uh, clauses under the Maintenance Regulation to. Um, to have maintenance dealt with in the, in the local country and so on. So you can, you can build up, um, sections in the agreement, or as I say, a short English law document, which tries to steer the agreement away from ever being scrutinized by, by an English judge in the, in the first place. And, um, and that sort of careful planning is more and more on, on clients' radar, in my experience.
1: I think the marriage contract cases are really interesting, aren't they? Because as you say, many of them are just tick boxes choosing a matrimonial property regime, but then you do get people here. You know, it's been something that they've understood or anticipate, anticipated happening, but it's a completely different beast to an English prenuptial yeah. agreement. And uh, the uh, case of CMX and EJX was a separation of assets. marriage contract that was upheld but again the point you make nick is that there was enough money in this case so while the wife's claim was a needs claim it was still a rather significant claim
0: yeah yeah that's right i mean there's a there's there's, there's that sort of strain of of cases involving wealthy europeans who if they had been divorcing in in their home country would have been absolutely bound by by the property regime they, they had chosen without the opportunity for any discretion at all but who end up spending hundreds of thousands of pounds on on fees um, litigating in, in this country, where their state of knowledge and understanding of of the the law and the consequences of the contract that they have have made is, is put in issue? The objective being to to show that one of them didn't actually understand it will be it will be binding on divorce, and therefore should be able to get out of it now. I, my instinct, but it's only instinct, is that. Those sorts of arguments are going to fade away now, because the the general trend is so much in in favour of upholding agreements, unless unless there's an obvious needs-based problem.
1: And I wonder if that That's then it. in, sorry Nick, oh. I wonder if that then in turn will also reduce the amount that, that are litigated because. I think for those wealthy couples who were entering into separation of assets regimes, then led their lives according to those matrimonial property regimes. And therefore, the wealth amassed was quite often in one party's name. And therefore, if you're in England and you're divorcing here, it is worth the argument, because if you have to spend a couple of hundred thousand pounds having the argument about millions, then it's going to be worth it. But as you say, if it's a steer away from that in terms of the judicial decisions, then also they'll probably be litigated less because it's not worth right. the money. I think,
0: I, I think that's right. And this is where the judgment of Mr Justice Moore in MN and AM from, from this march comes in, isn't it? That, that, that case, which attracted an enormous amount of publicity, didn't seem to me to break new ground in terms of legal analysis. But that's not a criticism, of course, of, of the judge didn't think he was, he was intending to do that. But why why it's important is that it demonstrates the the trend that that we're on and the instinctive, um, immediate response nowadays of judges asked to overturn agreements where there isn't any needs-based issue, as as there wasn't in in that case. And so I think you're right, Connie. I think that that case and, and others will lead to greater settlement of, of, of prenup cases.
3: On the other hand, you'd have thought that after Radmacher, wouldn't you, which was a German prenup that wasn't particularly generous, that the Supreme Court quite happily upheld
0: with a few times. That is, that is right, although, although what you see in the, in the authorities for the three or four years post-Radmacher is something of a rearguard action, particularly from Mr Justice Mostyn, I, I, I think, trying carefully to circumscribe the ambit of, of, of Radmacher in, in practice. And I think that, so, so the first sort of five years of the, of the development of, of the case law was, I think, slightly constrained by that, and things have moved on to, to some extent. And also, it was so new then, wasn't, wasn't it? I mean, we were only, <clears throat> we were only 15 years, in, by the time of Radmacher, we were only 15 years after FNF, where um, the of Appeal said in relation to German print that, that it was completely irrelevant in, in the English jurisdiction and not to be not to be regarded a, a, at all. So it's not too surprising, I suppose, that we've all taken some time to get to get used to them and had and had enough cases to to understand the ins and outs of litigating them
2: thank you so much for joining us. Honestly, I could listen to the two of you all day. And to our listeners, if you've liked what you've heard, please can you leave us a review?